0: We start with you now in God's Word the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large, furnished upper room. There, make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Word contains many mysteries. There is too much in it for the the greatest of minds to comprehend. Yet, Lord, even little children can understand that which is needful, that which is necessary for them, that which you have intended for them to receive. And so we pray, Lord God, in this portion of your own inerrant and inspired Holy Scripture, that you would bless it to us, that we would receive all the truth and modishment and encouragement that you have for your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time in the Gospel of Luke we were speaking of this plot to kill Jesus and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as it drew near the days leading up to it, perhaps the day before it. But now, now we come indeed to the Day of Unleavened Bread, the day when the Passover would be killed. And this is also the day in which Jesus is to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And this is something that we keep in mind, this dual track of the, the carrying on of the ceremonial law and the calendar that God had put in place and the sinking of that calendar with the events of the, the death and uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed in over into the hands of sinful men. That's going to happen later on in this very day. But before that something of tremendous importance, that Jesus was going to observe the Passover with his disciples. Now we know that Jesus was made under the law. He was a Jew. And he perfectly fulfilled all of the all of the law, all of the moral law, and yes, even all of the ceremonial law. He would fulfill all righteousness, as he explained even to the the uh, to John the Baptist when he says, "I have need to be baptized of you, and you're you're going to I, and and you're going to allow me to baptize you." And he says, "We're going to fulfill all righteousness." That was a whole. Pathway of the Lord Jesus Christ was to fulfill all righteousness, and so he did. But more than that, more than merely that he was going to participate in, he was going to submit to the ceremonial law, he himself was the fulfillment of the whole ceremonial law. You can take any part of that law you want to, any part, whether the feast days, as we're talking about now, Uh, Certainly whether we're talking about the Passover, the lamb, the unleavened bread, the continual sacrifices of animals, the scapegoat, the grain offering, whatever you want to take of all those things, all of them pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to what was about to happen as he laid down his life and atoning sacrifice. All of it pointed to what was about to happen. He was himself the fulfillment of the whole ceremonial law. And now he, as the Passover lamb, was about to be slain. He was about to shed his blood in order that we might, that the, the, the angel of death might pass over us, that we might be saved. But again, first, he's going to observe the Lord's Supper, but he, or the, he's going to observe the, the, the Passover, but he's going to, to institute the Lord's Supper. This is what's our next section. Uh, Beginning in verse 14. We're going to see how he begins this provision for God's people. It's, It's like the Passover. It has many parallels, but it's different. And it is for Christians in the New Testament times. And for that to happen, there needed to be a room. There needed to be wine. There needed to be bread. There needed to be all the elements that were designed for this Passover and therefore for the Lord's Supper, all those things had to be in place. And friends, this is the seemingly simple point of this sermon, that all of God's providence was utilized in order to make sure that these things were in place in order that his means of grace would be available for his people. And The title of the sermon is The Providence of Salvation, a providence of salvation. We see how God's hand extends there to be all the things necessary for God's people to be saved. And that is the simple point of this sermon. But there are three points beneath it that the Passover must happen, the disciples must prepare, and that the circumstances will align. The Passover must happen, the disciples must prepare. And the circumstances will align. Well, first of all, we think about how the Passover must happen. That's a little, little thing as we read God's word. We're always looking for details. We're always looking for meaning because every last word of it has great meaning. And as we read in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Must be killed. Not when the Passover ordinarily is killed, when it's designed that the Passover should be killed but rather that the Passover must be killed. Now, before that, we would just notice that the appointed day has finally come. That this pattern of annual feast, it was useful in all sorts of ways. Not only as appointed to Christ, but it also taught the people that in this pattern of annual feast, that the, the time is not random. That events do not just happen on their own, but rather this cycle of the annual feast was predetermined by God. There are appointed days for things and those days would eventually come. These days are, fulfilled, are, are prophesied, they are appointed in advance and then they actually happen. And this is a useful object lesson for God's people and a useful object lesson for all of us because we have just been previously in God's word reminding ourselves that the day of judgment is coming. That day has been set and, and things are in motion that will lead us most certainly to that very day. The day that is appointed will someday come. And we all must prepare for that great day. Well, this appointed day had finally come, the day on which the Passover lamb would be killed. Now, as we're reminding ourselves, funny enough, in God's providence, here we are in, in this part of Luke. And in the evening, we're in Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus 13, verse 8, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. There was significance to what happened in the Old Testament. And the greatest of the events of redemptive history in Old Testament was the Exodus, bringing them out of the land of slavery, bringing them into the promised land. And to do that, there must be a Passover. And all the the circumstances were settled so that there would be a Passover and that there would be a continual memorial of that great event from year to year, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day... And the significance for this particular day, this particular day of unleavened bread, for hundreds of years they had kept that feast. And now the great day had come. Eventually there would be the year in which the, the type would coincide with its fulfillment in Christ. And this was that year. And that was that day. Appointed day has come. In which the Passover must be killed. This Word must. Again, not should or would or could, but must. This little Greek word of necessity, of inevitability. Well, we have seen this word many times before in in the Gospel of Luke. I don't know if you've noticed it. But just to refresh your memory, back in chapter 4, verse 43, he said to them, This is Jesus speaking, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I've been sent. It's not I should. It's not I would like to, it's that I must do it. It's been appointed by my Father and so I therefore must do it. Or maybe Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He must. He's been appointed. This is the great work that he's been given. Yes, he was given the work of preaching. Even beyond that, he was given the work of dying. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders. He must be killed. And these things were being fulfilled now, this time. Indeed, even more recently and Luke thirteen thirty three. I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is telling us that these things are inevitable, these things are necessary, they must and they shall be fulfilled. And he says, and the word of God now says that the Passover lamb must be killed. Now, friends, Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's very clear that in principle these things were done from the very beginning. But that doesn't take away from the fact that they must have a fulfillment in actual time and space. And this was that day. And this is that time. The Passover lamb must be killed. But secondly, the disciples must prepare. This is what's interesting to me. Maybe it's interesting to you as well. You would think maybe if you were God that you would just go around making things appear out of thin air. And, and that things that you want to happen, they would just happen as if they were of magic. But friends, the Lord doesn't work that way ordinarily. Because he sends, the Lord Jesus sends his disciples to make preparations. In verse 8, he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Now, the Passover must happen. We see that the disciples must prepare for it. Now, I'll just note in passing that it is Peter and John. Who is it that are sent? It's Peter and John, the two closest, most trusted disciples, and it reminds us that this Aaron is too important for him to send just anyone. Now, I just say, by the way, to you young people, children and young people, some of you are wonderfully reliable And adults would be glad to send you to do anything, and some of you a little less so. Now let me tell you that all the disciples, save from Judas, were going to be saved, weren't they? Do you believe that, children? All of the disciples were going to be saved. But you know what? The rest of them, apart from those two trusted disciples of the inner circle of John and Peter, they missed out on this little thing. And they missed out on a lot of other things in the course of their time. They missed out on the transfiguration. They missed out on any number of things because, yes, they were part of God's people. Yes, they would be saved. But they weren't the most trusted. They weren't the closest. Their fellowship with the Lord Jesus wasn't as close as it could have or maybe should have been. And therefore, it was their loss. Their experience of being a disciple was not everything it could be because they were not as close to the Lord. They were not as useful and therefore not sent on as many errands of the Lord. As maybe they would wish in eternity, to be sent on an errand of the Lord is not something is not a drudgery to endure, but it is an honor to be thankful for. And we should it should all be our ambition, even old people. It should be our ambition to be on the Lord's errand. Well, another thing that I'll mention uh, again is the inclusion that we may eat. Have you noticed that? That we may eat. And soon enough we're going to come in the next section to the verse 15 where he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He wants to eat this meal together. And this provision that he is making for the very last of the Passover meals and the very first of the Lord's Supper, it is specifically so that he might eat together with his disciples. And friends, I hope that you understand that and believe that And if you receive the Lord's Supper this evening, that you think that God has made provision in order that we might eat together this great supper. What a thought that the Lord Jesus Christ eats and receives with you in this way, spiritually having fellowship with you. Well, the main thing, these are interesting points and things that we should learn from. The main thing, is that this is going to uh, that the Lord Jesus is commanding some of the disciples to go and prepare the Passover. It's going to happen. That much is absolutely certain. It was in the Word of God. And we know just recently, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It was going to happen. Yet he nonetheless sends the disciples to prepare to make preparation for the supper. Do you understand that in God's work of redemption that he uses people is an amazement to me. The more that we know about the sovereignty of God, the more that we know about his absolute power. He spoke the whole universe into existence just by the word of his power, and he, he does it so very easily. The more that we think about this, the more amazing it is to us that he would use us at all. As friends, I want you to know that it, he could very easily snap his fingers and a Passover meal would have, been, would have appeared. He could have done that. But he uses means. He uses instruments. And in particular, he uses people to do it. What an amazing thing. So they said to him, verse 9, where do you want us to prepare? Now, skipping all the instructions, which we're going to talk about in a minute... But skipping all the various instructions which he gave, which are very detailed, and and all the circumstances are just perfect, the outcome is that they prepared the Passover. And what I want to say about this is that the disciples were simply obedient to the command that they had received, even though it seemed rather unlikely, although they had no money in their hands. Now think about that. Sometimes I, I send... Uh, some of you on various errands, we need this or we need that. We, we need digital thermostats so we know how hot it is and open windows when it gets too hot. We need microphones and we need, we need speakers and we need a piano and all the rest of these things. But thankfully, in God's goodness, I normally send you with money to go do it. Lord Jesus just sent these disciples with no money in their hands to do the work. In fact, interestingly, the, the disciples were thinking that he was going to send Judas. When Judas when he tells Judas, the thing that you're going to do, you go ahead and do it. All right, go, go ahead and get it over with. They thought that it had something to do with going and buying provisions because he had the bag. But in fact, the provisions had already been provided. And it had nothing to do with money. God's wonderful provision is met in these disciples' simple obedience to go and do what they were told, to make provision for the Passover. And so they did. Well, the Passover, it had to happen. The disciples still had to go make provision. But thirdly, I want us to see that the circumstances must align. In verse 9, so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you. Carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. A man carrying a pitcher of water? How, how does the Lord know that a man's going to be carrying a pitcher of water? Why, this man, doesn't he have free will? Isn't he able to do whatever he'd like to do? How is it then that it is even known in advance that somebody's going to do something? You do understand, of course. That if anyone, even if you were not God, were to know entirely what you were going to do, in some sense then you have to say, well, the action that you're about to do is necessary. The mere action of me lifting this, this glass, if any one of you knew for certain that at precisely this moment I was going to do it, well, it kind of seems like this thing is a necessary thing, isn't it? Well, friends, this is the wonderful mystery of the reality of God's sovereignty And of our own free will. The reality is that no one put a gun to my head to lift up this cup. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ knew that. The Father knew that I was going to do it. And to add to it, the Father determined that I was going to do it from all eternity. And so he did with this man, this unnamed man whom they met. God had determined that he would decide on that day to carry this pitcher of water at that moment, that he would be encountered by these two. When you have entered the city, a man will meet you. Now, how does the Lord even know how fast they're going to go? Who, who's setting the pace here as they're walking into the city? Is it Peter or is it John? We know that John walked faster than Peter. John was a younger man and he beat him to, uh, as he ran ahead uh, soon enough, in just a couple days, a few days from now, he's going to be running to the tomb and he's going to outrun Peter. The Lord knows all those things, doesn't he? This is all in accordance with his own perfect plan. And he knows that the circumstances will align because he has determined them to be. And God's sovereignty extends even to the actions and decisions of man. Well, so he's going to see them. The man is going to meet them. In verse 11, then you shall say to the master of the house, a teacher says to me, where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Where is it? Amazing thought. Imagine going up to someone in such a circumstance. Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And there's no hint here that there was any pre-arrangement that they had made this meeting at all, and it's merely that God had need of it, just like he did the donkey. Do you remember that? The donkey. What are you doing? Loosing the colt. He says, The Lord has need of it. And that was enough. Friends, that should be enough for us as well. I don't know if this man had any plans for his guest room that day, but the Lord had need of it. We all should be ready, shouldn't we? Even as the disciples should stand ready and make themselves useful and be willing and able to be sent on errands of the Lord to their great honor and privilege and blessing, so we should be ready to have our things being used. The Lord has need of this guest room. A furnished guest room, by the way. A furnished guest room. It's not wrong to have possessions. It's wrong to withhold them from good use. It's wrong to, not u- to use them in selfish ways. But it's not wrong to have possessions. The Lord glorified himself in the use of this furnished guest room. A provision that ordinarily this family didn't need. Why? Because it wasn't being used. It's a guest room. It's an upper room. It's furnished. But the Lord had need of it. And there he will show you a large furnace upper room and there make ready. And in verse 13, so they went and found it just as he had said to them. Imagine how their faith is being enhanced and confirmed as they have these, they, they hear the instructions, and they walk into the city. Maybe they're wondering, should we walk faster or slower? Or, I don't know, because are we going to miss this? Per- no, they, they just walk, and they get there, and there's a the man carrying water. And they go, um, uh, where's the, up?" Uh, the, the teacher says, where's the, the room that we can have the Passover? And expecting maybe that the, the man's going to say, I don't have an extra room. I, I live in a shack or something. And he says, oh, Follow me. And they do. Well, they found it just as he'd said to them God's sovereignty in the providence, in the actual working out of affairs of mankind, is intimately related to his sovereignty in creation. They're two different aspects of the very same thing. You know that God spoke this world into creation, into existence. You know that in Genesis 1-6, God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters, which were under the firmament, from the waters, which were above the firmament. And it was so. And in fact, as you go through the days of creation, over and again, you hear this refrain, And it was so. God said it, and it was so. Well, the Lord Jesus said, that this was going to happen. And it was so. Now, if you were John, seeing these things happen just as it it was, surely your faith would be strengthened. Surely you would be prepared just a little bit more to come then to the, the empty tomb and to believe and to receive these things as you see them being fulfilled before your eyes. And friends, this is for you as well. That as we see these things fulfilled in Scripture happening exactly as they were, we know that his promises to us are true. When he says that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, when he says that he is coming again to take his people with him up into heaven, to be with him forever, to make a new heaven and a new earth, when he says that he's bringing this wicked world into judgment, and friends, we can believe it, all these things will happen Exactly as he has said. And all that is given to us is to obey. Because we know they're going to happen. Now, let me speak a little bit more particularly about this. Let's go from the very biggest thing down to the very smallest thing that this passage teaches us by way of application. All right, let's start with the very biggest thing that we can imagine, which is that the Lord is sovereign over everything, absolutely everything, because he is the Lord of the universe. That is his name. That is his title. He is in charge of everything. And that, my friends, includes what people do. The reason, again, why he knew exactly what that man would be doing exactly at that place in time is because he is the sovereign Lord of the whole universe. He determines all of their actions. And we should take great comfort in these things. Because you know what, if his sovereignty only extended to mere material things, that wouldn't do us much good. Because the most significant things in our lives are not merely material. Right? If we believed in a God that could keep the lights on at our house, but didn't believe that he, that he could keep us alive, or that he could keep our enemies at bay, or or enable people to provide for us in various ways, or to be of assistance, or however it might be, it wouldn't do us much good. All the most significant things that happen in this world go down to the decisions of people, and God, yes, even has those things all in hand. And we should take great comfort in that, knowing that there is not a a single molecule, not a single subatomic particle that is astray in this whole universe, nothing that is outside of his sovereign control. And he can even, by the way, get this, he can even overrule ourselves to bring about the best outcomes. Some of us who have been walking in this Christian road for a time, for a while, know that's true. Because sometimes the things that we want aren't the best things. Sometimes the things that we want are wrong. And the Lord is able to overrule even our bad decisions to bring about his good outcomes in the glory of God. And we can rest, therefore, if we know that the Lord is sovereign over everything, we can rest with the greatest of assurance that all will be well. Isn't that the testimony of God's people throughout history? Isn't it even of Daniel MacArthur? If you saw that, the Asher's Baker case, as he gave his statement, he said something towards the end along the lines of that we know that God is on the throne. Well, he lost the case. We lost the case. But he knows that God is on the throne. You do comfort from it, and so should we. The Lord is sovereign over all things. Secondly, as we go from the broadest to something a little bit narrower, which is that the Lord has the entire work of redemption in his hands. Okay, so he's sovereign over all things, but more particularly the work of redemption. The, uh, Edwards was constantly pointing out that even though the Lord governed all things. He's a ruler of the universe. He takes particular interest in his own uh, people. It's sort of like the the, the sovereign or maybe the, the prince of Wales being over all the armed forces, but has particular interest in certain units that are uh, her own or his own and so forth. We have the queen's own this and the this so forth, and the, the, the dukes this and, and the other. And there's a particular emphasis on a smaller group. And friends, that's us. All right? The Lord knows what everything, everyone, he knows everyone's name. He, he is in charge of all things, of all the billions of people on earth, but he really, really cares about his own people. And if he governs the affairs of everything, He is most particularly and immediately interested and involved in the work of redemption. That bringing of people to salvation. All the elect that we see there in Revelation chapter 7, that people from every tribe and tongue under heaven, every last one of them that are going to surely come to salvation. He is concerned with that. This is what he, as it were, busies himself particularly with. And the work of creation, as amazing as it as it was, the work of upholding the creation, as amazing as it is, far more so is he concerned with this building up of the bride of Christ. He really cares about that. And he has it all in hand. And thirdly, if we think about the fact that he's in charge of everything, but he's more particularly concerned with the work of redemption, of the salvation of men and women children he also cares about the means of that redemption right? because just because God's on the throne firmly directing all things and particularly the work of redemption doesn't mean that he's not concerned with the details of how it's going to happen that's what we think about the means of grace are the the details the little things that he uses in order to make it all happen particularly the ordinary means of grace preaching the word of God the the sacraments and prayer but actually that 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 category extends to everything that he uses to bring us to himself and he's not constantly just snapping his fingers making things appear and disappear like a genie quite the contrary and if i would say the single greatest lesson of this passage is that he is completely concerned with making provision for the ordinary means of grace he determined that this means would be available for his disciples. He wanted them to partake of the Lord's Supper in order that they might be bene- they benefit and they'd be strengthened on the eve of his departure. And he made provision for it. He did not just say, I will somehow uphold you. He says, I'm going to give you the means. He provides the Lord's Supper. He provides a long teaching session on the doctrine of the Trinity. He is teaching them doctrine. He provides the Lord's Supper and he is praying for them in the high priestly prayer. He is eminently concerned with delivering the means of grace to his disciples on the eve of his departure. And friends, that care, that provision, that planning, that goes into each and every one of the Lord's Day services. What I do, what we as elders do, is absolutely nothing in comparison to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for this to have happened. Yes, Friday night, I I I decide what what tunes that we're going to sing and what hymns and what we're going to read. And I send it out to you, you all late at night. And so Saturday morning, you can get up and take a look at these things and prepare yourself for the Lord's day. But friends, that is nothing compared to the minute planning that the Lord Jesus has done for each and every one of these Lord's days in order that he might feed you, in order that he might provide for you, because this is his great concern, that you have the means of grace to bring you to salvation and to uphold you and build you up in the faith. He's sovereign over everything. He's more particularly concerned with the work of salvation. And within that, he is very much concerned with the means of bringing that about. And finally, he is particularly in this passage concerned about the Lord's Supper. Fourthly and finally, this supper prepared in the good and generous providence of a good and generous God. He was going to have that supper with his disciples. He made use of instruments. He made use of his disciples to make it happen. But this was his plan. This was his provision. This is what he wanted to feed his people spiritually. Yes, then actually physically, but also particularly spiritually. And friends, in God's providence tonight, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. And all during that administration, all during your reception of it, I want your thought to be that this is all at the Lord's direction for me. He has moved heaven and earth in order that I might have, yes, even the elements, yes, even the outward signs of these things, but far more so the inner spiritual reality of them. He has moved heaven and earth that there might be a Passover lamb, that he would die an appointed day, and what is more, that he would rise again the third day, and that all who believe in him and all who feed on him spiritually would be saved. He desired that you might have this supper with us. And he has made it possible. And we should give thanks. Let's pray. Our sovereign Heavenly Father, there is nothing in this whole creation that you do not control. You are truly God. You are truly the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord, we know. Though you rule all things, you are more particularly concerned with the affairs of your own kingdom of grace as you bring people into it. And Lord, as you determined the set days of the people of Israel, their times and their seasons were in your hands. At the precise time of the precise year, you brought them out of the nation of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And year by year, at the appointed day, Passover lamb was slain and then one of these days one of these years the appointed time came that the thing of which all this was pointing to would happen the Lord Jesus Christ would lay down his life and Heavenly Father we are thankful for all the details that went into it all the provision yes even of this furnished upper room where he might eat with his disciples on the eve of his departure Heavenly Father, we pray that we would take great comfort from these things, that our faith would be strengthened as we see them, that we ourselves would understand that our days are truly in our hands, that everything that you have ever said, every warning that you give, will surely come to pass. Therefore, we pray that all who are not believers would flee to Christ in faith, that they would embrace him as the provision given that they might be saved. And that, Lord, that we, having received these things, would be confident in them and would simply obey as we go about your errands in this world, doing the things that you've called us to do, knowing that all the circumstances, they will surely align, just as you've determined them to be. Help us, therefore, to walk in joy and in confidence, knowing your provision for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.